Chapter 3 of True Tales of Arctic Heroism in the New World. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. True Tales of Arctic Heroism in the New World by Adolphus W. Greeley. Chapter 3 The Retreat of Ross from the Victory. For there is none of you so mean and base that has no noble luster in your eyes. Shakespeare. Among the many notable voyages in search of the Northwest Passage, although less spectacular in phases of adventurous exploration than some others, there is none which deserves more careful examination than that of Sir John Ross in the Victory. Not only did this voyage make most important contributions to the various branches of science, but it was unequalled for its duration and unsurpassed in variety of experiences. It was fitted out as a private expedition, largely at the expenses of Felix Booth, Sheriff of London, was absent from 1829 to 1833, and was the first Arctic expedition to use steam as a motive power. Sailing in the small paddle-wheel steamer Victory, Ross passed through Baffin Bay into Lancaster Sound, whence he shaped his course to the south. Discovering the eastern shores of North Somerset and of Boothia, he put his ship into winter quarters at Felix Harbor, which became his base of operations. Rarely have such valuable explorations been made without disaster or even serious hardships. Boothia was found to be the most northerly apex of the continent of North America, while to its west King William Land and other extended areas were discovered. Of surpassing interest and importance was magnetic work done by James Clark Ross, a nephew of Sir John. Many persons do not realize that the place to which constantly points the north end of the needle of the magnetic compass is not the North Geographic Pole. The locality to which the compass turns is, in fact, nearly 1,400 miles to the south of the North Pole. With this expedition in 1830, James Clark Ross, by his many observations, proved that the North Magnetic Pole, to which the needle of the compass points, was then very near Cape Adelaide, in 70 degrees and 5 minutes north latitude, 96 degrees 44 minutes west longitude. Footnote. While the North Magnetic Pole constantly changes its position, yet such movements are very slow, and while at present its exact situation is not known, its locality is quite near this. End of the footnote. The adventures of the crew in their retreat from Boothia land by boat and sledge are recorded in this sketch. Captain Ross failing to free his ship from the ice the second summer, it was clear to him that the victory must be abandoned the coming spring. It was true salmon were so abundant in the lakes of Boothia that 5,000 were caught in one fishing trip, which netted six tons of dressed fish. But bread and salt meat, the usual and favorite food of the crew, were so short that it had become necessary to reduce the daily issues. Fuel was so reduced that none remained save for cooking. 
and the deck had to be strewn with a thick coating of gravel for warmth before the usual covering of snow was spread over the ship. Creatures of habit, the seamen now showed signs of depression, bordering on discontent, if not of despair. There were two routes to retreat open to Ross, one being toward the south, attractive as being warmer and possibly more ice-free. He chose, however, the way to the north, which, desolate as it might be, was known to him both as to its food supplies and also as to the chances of meeting a ship. Every year the daring Scotch whalers were fishing in Lancaster Sound and at Fury Beach, on the line by which he would travel, were large quantities of food, boats, and other needful articles, landed from the wreck of Parry's ship Fury in 1825. Ross did not plan his abandonment of the victory any too early, for in January Seaman Dixon died, and his mate Book lost his eyesight from epilepsy. Signs of the dreaded Arctic horror, scurvy, were not lacking, as the foolish seamen were averse to the antiscorbutic lime juice and refused to take the fresh salmon oil ordered by the doctor. Ross was also affected, his old wounds breaking out afresh, reminders of the day when, as a lieutenant, he had aided in cutting out a Spanish ship under the batteries of Bilbao. Knowing that the victory would be plundered by the natives after its abandonment, Ross provided for a possible contingency of falling back on her for another winter, and so constructed a cave inshore in which were cached scientific instruments, ship's logs, accounts, ammunition, etc. Sledge building began in January, and the dismantling of the ship proceeded as fast as the weakness of the crew permitted. It was impossible to reach the open water of Prince Regent Inlet without establishing advanced depots of provisions and of boats, as the conditions at Fury Beach were unknown. Flow travel was so bad, and the loads hauled by the enfeebled men so small, that it took the entire month of April to move a distance of thirty miles two boats and food for five weeks while open water was not to be expected within 300 miles. On May 29, 1832, the British colors were hoisted, nailed to the mast, duly saluted, and the victory abandoned. With the true military spirit, Ross was the last to quit his ship, his first experience in 42 years' service in 36 ships. The prospects were dismal enough, with heavily laden sledges moving less than a mile an hour, while the party were encumbered by helpless men. These were moved with comfort by rigging up overhead canvas canopies for the sledge, on which a man could be carried in his sleeping bag. The midsummer month of June opened with the sea ice stretching like solid marble as far north as the eye could reach. The change from forecastle to tent from warm hammocks and hot meals to frozen blankets and lukewarm food, told severely on the worn-out sledgemen, whose thirst even could be but rarely quenched, until later the snow of the land began to melt. Now and then a lucky hunter killed a hare, or later a duck, still in its snowy winter coat, which gave an ounce or two of fresh meat to flavor the canned meat stew. 
Six days out, the seamen, demoralized at their slow progress, sent a delegation asking the captain to abandon boats and food so that traveling light they might the earlier reach the Fury Beach depot. Ross, with firmness, reprimanded the spokesman and ordered the men to take up the line of march. He knew that food could not be thus wasted without imperiling the fate of the party, and that boats were absolutely essential. While striving to the utmost with the crew, coming a week later to a safe place, he caged both boats, and, taking all the food, sent his nephew ahead to learn whether the boats at Fury Beach were serviceable. After a journey in which young Ross displayed his usual heroic energy and ability, he brought the glad news that although a violent gale had carried off the three boats and seriously damaged one, yet he had secured all, so the boats of the victory could be left behind. July the 1st brought the party to Fury Beach, where, despite orders and cautions, some of the hungry seamen gorged themselves sick. But the ice was still solid. Ross therefore built a house of canvas stretched over a wooden frame and named the habitation Somerset House, as it was on North Somerset land. Work was pushed on the boats, which were in bad shape, and as they were of mahogany, they were sure to lack the fine flotation qualities of those left behind. Ross fitted his two boats with mutton sails, while the nephew put in sprit sails. Fortunately, the food at Fury Beach had escaped the ravages of Arctic animals, though the clever sharp-nosed foxes had scented the tallow candles, gnawed holes through the boxes and made way with them all. Everything was arranged for a long sea trip, each boat being loaded with food for sixty days, and had assigned thereto an officer and seven seamen. The ice opening suddenly and unexpectedly, they started north on August the 1st, moving by oar power, as the water lanes were too narrow and irregular for the use of sails. On the water once more, the crew thought their retreat secure. They had hardly gone eight miles before they were driven to shore by the moving pack and were barely able to draw up their boats when the floes drove violently against the rocks, throwing up great pressure ridges of heavy ice and nearly destroying the boats. The men had scarcely begun to congratulate themselves on their escape from death in the pack when they realized that they were under conditions of great peril. They found themselves on a rocky beach, only a few yards in width, which was a talus of loose, rolling rocks at the base of perpendicular cliffs nearly five hundred feet high. As the ice, which cemented the disintegrating upper cliffs, melted, the least wind loosened stones, which fell in numbers around them, one heavy rock striking a boat's mast. Unable to escape by land, hemmed in by the closely crowding pack, they passed nine days unable to protect themselves, and fearing death at any moment from some of the falling stones, which at times came in showers. They were tantalized by the presence of numerous foxes and flocks of game birds, but they did not dare to fire at them, fearing 
that the concussion from the firing would increase the number of the falling rocks. With barely room for their tents under the disintegrating precipice, with decreasing food in freezing weather, without fuel, and with the short summer going day by day, they suffered agonies of mind and of body. Fortunately, the ice opened a trifle to the southward, so that they were able to launch the lightest boat, which went back to Fury Beach, and obtained food for three weeks. Driven ashore by the ice pack on its return, the crew from Fury Beach managed with difficulty to rejoin the main party on foot. In this, as in other instances, they had very great difficulty in hauling up their heavy mahogany boats, it being possible to handle the heaviest only by tackle. Through the opening ice they made very slow progress, being often driven to shore. Most rarely did anything laughable occur, but one experience gave rise to much fun. One morning the cook was up early to celebrate a departure from their usually simple meal. The day before, the hunters had killed three hares, and the cook now intended to make a toothsome sea pie, for which he was celebrated among the men. Half awake, he groped around for his foot gear, but could find only one boot. Rubbing his eyes and looking around him, he was astonished to see a white fox near the door of the tent, calmly gnawing at the missing boot. Seizing the nearest loose article, he threw it at the animal, expecting that he would drop the boot. The half-famished fox had no mind to lose his breakfast, and holding fast to the boot fled up the hill, to the disgust of the cook and to the amusement of his comrades. To add to the fun, they named the place Boot Bite, though some said that there was more than one bite in the lost boot. A strong gale opening the sea, they improved the occasion by crossing Batty Bay, when the heavy mahogany boat of Ross was nearly swamped. She took in so much water that the crew were wet up to their knees, and it required lively work and good seamanship to save her. After more than seven weeks of such terrible struggles with the ice, the three boats re reached the junction of Prince Regent Inlet and Lancaster Sound, only to find the sea covered with continuous, impenetrable ice flows. Ross sketched his instruments, records, specimens, etc. for the following year, so as to return light to Somerset House. There were objections to returning south on the part of some of the crew, who suggested that under the command of young Ross, and apparently with his approval, the stronger members should, quote, take a certain amount of provisions from each boat and attempt to obtain a passage over the ice, end quote. This meant not only the division of the party, but almost certainly would have resulted in the death of all. For the crossing party of the strongest men would have reached a barren land, while the sick and helpless would have perished in trying to return alone to Somerset House, Fury Beach. Ross wisely held fast to this opinion, and the return trip began. The delay caused by differences of opinion nearly proved fatal, owing to the rapidly forming new ice 
through which the boats were only moved by rolling them. The illy clad man now suffered terribly from the cold, as the temperature was often at zero or below. It was so horrible to sleep in the open crowded boats that they sought the shore whenever possible. Generally there was neither time nor was there fit snow to put up a snow hut, and then the men followed another plan to lessen their terrible sufferings and sleepless nights. Each of the seamen had a single blanket, which had been turned into a sack-shaped sleeping bag, so that their feet should not become exposed and freeze while they were asleep. Each of the three messes dug a trench in a convenient snowdrift, long enough and wide enough to hold the seven sleeping bags when arranged close together. Thrown over and covering the trench was a canvas sail or tent, and the canvas was then overlaid with thick layers of snow, which thus prevented any of the heat of the men from escaping. Very carefully brushing off any particles of snow on their outer garments, the men carefully warmed themselves into their sleeping bags, and by huddling together were generally able to gain such collective heat as made it possible for them to drop off to sleep. Whenever practicable, they supplemented their now reduced rations by the hunt, but got little except foxes and hares. The audacity of the white arctic foxes was always striking and at times amusing. Once a thievish fox crept slyly into a tent where the men were quietly awaiting the return of the comrade, for whose convenience a candle was kept lighted. The candle smelt and looked good to Master Fox, who evidently had never seen such a thing as fire before. Running up to the candle, he boldly snapped at it, when his whiskers were so sorely singed that he departed in hot haste. All laughed and thought that was the end of the affair. But a few minutes later, discomfited, but not discouraged, Master Fox, with his scorched head fur, appeared again in the tent. He had learned his lesson, for avoiding the candle, he snapped up the southwester of the engineer and made off with it, though a watching sailor threw a candlestick at him. The weather soon became most bitterly cold, and as they sailed or rowed toward Fury Beach, the seawater often froze as it fell in driblets on their garments. Food was reduced a third, as Ross knew that the return in boats was now doubtful. A gale drove them to a wretched spot, a rocky beach six feet wide beneath frowning cliffs, many hundred of feet high. Their food was now cut off one half, and the daily hunt brought little, a few foxes and seagulls, with an occasional duck from the southward flying flocks. Near Betty Bay they were caught in the ice pack two miles from land, and their fate was for a time doubtful. Only by almost superhuman efforts did they effect their release. The cargo was carried ashore by hand, and by using the masts as rollers under the hulls of the boats, though often discouraged by their breaking through the new thin ice, they managed at last to get the boats safe on shore. It might be thought that three years of Arctic service would have taught the men prudence. But here one of the sailors 
in zero weather, rolled a bread cask along the shore with bare hands, which caused him to lose the tips of his fingers, and obliged other men to do his duty. It was now necessary to make the rest of the journey to Fury Beach overland. Fortunately, there were some empty bread casks, out of which the carpenter made shift to build three sledges. The party left everything behind for the journey of the next spring, taking only tentage, food, needful tools and instruments. The way lay along the base of precipitous cliffs, with deep drifts of loose snow on the one hand, and on the other rough ridges of heavy ice pushed up from the sea. Hard as were the conditions of travel for the worn-out seamen, they were much worse for the crippled mate, Taylor, who could not walk with his crutches, and who suffered agony by frequent falls from the overturning sled on which he had to be hauled. The first day broke one sledge, and with zero temperatures the spirits of the men were most gloomy. Being obliged to make double trips to carry their baggage, some of the sailors complained when told off to return for the crippled mate. Ross shamed them into quiet by telling them how much better was their case to be able to haul a shipmate than was that that of the wretched mate depending on others for life and comfort. How closely the party was pressed by fate is shown by their eating the last morsel of their food the day they reached Somerset House. As they approached, a white fox fled from the house, but though dirty, cold, hungry, and exhausted, they were happy to reach this desolate spot which they now called home. Apart from the death of the carpenter, the winter passed without any distressing events, though some of the men failed somewhat in strength. It was a matter of rejoicing that in the early spring they obtained fresh meat by killing two bears. The carcass of one of them was set up as a decoy, and one of the seamen stuck a piece of iron hoop into it as a tail. Soon frozen solid, it attracted another bear, who rushed at it and, after capsizing it, was killed by a volley from sailors lying in wait. Careful plans were made for the summer campaign. Stoves were reduced to one-fourth of their original weight, and sledges were shod from ice saws. The three sledges were fitted with four uprights, with a canvas mat hauled out to each corner. On this upper mat the sick and helpless men were laid in their sleeping bags, and thus could make with comparative comfort any sledge journeys that might be necessary. It was deemed advisable to provide for travel either by land or by sea. The ice of Prince Regent Inlet held fast far into the summer, and at times there stole into the minds of even the most hopeful and courageous a fear, lest it should not break up at all. Birds and game were fairly plentiful, far more so than in the preceding year, but all hope, care, and interest centered in the coming boat journey. No one could look forward to the possibility of passing a fifth year in the Arctic regions without most dismal forebodings as to the sufferings and fatalities that must result therefrom. The highest cliffs that commanded a view of the inlet to the north 
were occupied by eager watchers of the ice horizon. Day after day, and week after week passed, without the faintest signs of water spots, which mark the disintegrating pack and give hopes of its coming disruption. Would the pack ever break? Could the vast and broken extent of ice ever waste away so that boats could pass? A thousand times this or similar questions were asked, and no answer came. Midsummer was far past when, by one of those sudden and almost instantaneous changes of which the polar pack is possible, a favorable wind and fortunate current dissipated the ice covering of the inlet, and alongshore, stretching far to the north, an ice-free channel appeared. With the utmost haste the boats were loaded, the selected stores having long been ready, and with hearts full of hope they started towards the north. Ross and his officers fully realized that this was their sole and final chance of life, and that failure to reach the whalers of Barrow Strait or Baffin Bay meant ultimate death by starvation. Amid the alternations during their voyage of open water, of the dangerous navigation of various ice streams, and of the tantalizing land delays, when the violent insetting pack drove them to the cliff-bounded beaches of North Somerset, even the feeblest worked with desperate energy, for all knew that their lives depended on concerted, persistent, intelligent action. The ice conditions improved as they worked to the north of the Prince Regent Inlet, and finally the pack was so disrupted and wasted that they crossed to Baffin Land without difficulty. Skirting the northern coast of that desolate land, they sailed to the eastward, hoping almost against hope to see a friendly sail, for the season was passing, and the nights had begun to lengthen rapidly. On the morning of August 25, 1833, their feelings were raised to an intense pitch of excitement by the sight of a sail, which failed to detect in turn the forlorn castaways. Though some fell into deep despair, as the ship stood away, the more rational men felt assured to their final safety, since whalers were actually in the strait. A few hours later, they were fortunate enough to fall in with and to be picked up by the whaler Isabella, a remarkable incident from the fact that she was the Arctic ship which Sir John Ross had commanded in his expedition of 1818 to Baffin Bay. When Ross answered the hail from the astonished captain of the Isabella, it was a unique and startling greeting that he received. For, when answering that he was Captain John Ross, the captain of the whaler blurted out, Why, Captain Ross has been dead two years, which was indeed the general belief. After investigating the affairs of the expedition, a committee of Parliament reported, quote, that a great public service had been performed with deeds of daring enterprise and patient endurance of hardships. End quote. They added that Captain John Ross quote, had the merit of maintaining both health and discipline in a remarkable degree under circumstances the most trying to which British seamen were perhaps ever subjected. End quote. Through daily duty well done, by fidelity to work in hand, 
and by unfailing courage in dire extremities. Sir John Ross and his expeditionary force won their country's praise for heroic conduct. End of chapter 3